Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Julia Malkina. I'm a partner in SNC's litigation group and co lead of the firm's securities litigation practice. I'm here today with my partners, Jeff Scott, co lead of SNC's securities litigation practice, and Steve Pekin, lead of the firm's securities and commodities investigations practice. Today, we will provide our review of recent private securities litigation. Jeff, let's start with the overall numerical picture. Sounds great. Thanks, Julia. There was a slowdown in private securities litigation in 2021 for the second year in a row. In 2021, plaintiffs filed 218 securities class actions in federal and state courts compared to 333 filings in 2020. That's also less than half of the all-time high of 427 filings in 2019. Of the 218 securities class actions in 2021, 200 were so-called core filings. That's filings that were not M&A related compared to 234 core filings in 2020. So the drop in M&A related filings was much larger than the drop in core filings. In 2021, M&A-related filings fell by 82% from the previous year, and core filings unrelated to IPOs or secondary offerings fell by 17% from the previous year. Despite the general downward trend, Julia, we continue to see an increase in SPAC-related filings. In 2021, there were 32 securities class actions arising from SPAC transactions compared to just five filings in 2020. Of those 32 filings, 10 were directed against companies in the automotive industry, and nine were directed against companies in the consumer sector space. Except for one M&A-related class action, all of the SPAC-related securities class actions filed in federal court involved claims under Section 10B of the Exchange Act. Interestingly, Jeff, during 2021, only 2.2% of companies listed in the S&P 500 were subject to a core filing in federal court. That's the lowest level since 2015. Although filings against S&P 500 companies in the consumer staples, energy, and telecom sectors doubled from 2020 levels, there was not a single filing against an S&P 500 company in the consumer discretionary, financials, real estate, healthcare, and utility sectors. In addition to this, we've once again seen a decline in securities litigation in state court. This has been a trend that we've been watching since the Delaware Supreme Court's decision in Schiabucci in 2020. In 2021, plaintiffs filed only 13 Securities Act class actions in state court, down from 23 in 2020, 52 in 2019, and 35 in 2018. Of the 13 filings in 2021, 10 were filed in New York and only one in California, a major drop from past years. Parallel filings, where a plaintiff brings a securities claim in both federal and state court, also declined, with five filings in 2021 compared to eight filings in 2020. Thank you, Jeff and Steve. Speaking of securities litigation in state court, there's been a new development out of the California Court of Appeal. Let's turn to that decision now. In 2020 and 2021, there were a series of decisions from California trial courts on federal forum provisions, or FFPs. FFPs are provisions in corporate charters or bylaws 
that require all Securities Act claims to be brought in federal court. These California trial court decisions generally enforced FFPs, dismissing the Securities Act claims filed in state court. In April 2022, the California Court of Appeal issued its first decision on the enforceability of FFPs. In Wong versus Restoration Robotics, the Court of Appeal First District affirmed the dismissal of a Securities Act claim based on the doctrine of forum nonconvenience, where the defendant company's certificate of incorporation included FFP. This is the first appellate decision on this issue out of California, one of the states that has historically seen the most state court securities litigation. The plaintiffs place significant weight on two provisions of the Securities Act. First, the removal bar of the Securities Act, which provides that no case arising under the Securities Act and brought in state court shall be removed to any court of the United States. And second, the anti-waiver provisions of the Securities Act, which provide that any condition, stipulation, or provision binding any person acquiring any security to waive compliance with any provision of the subchapter shall be void. The Court of Appeal explained that the anti-removal bar does only what it says it does. That is, it prevents the defendant from removing a case that has been filed in state court. It does not go further to prohibit forum selection clauses. And the Court of Appeal reasoned that a forum selection agreement doesn't violate the anti-waiver provision because requiring recourse to a federal court doesn't undermine any substantive rights under the Securities Act. In addition, Julie, the Court of Appeal held that Delaware corporate law, which permits federal forum provisions, does not violate the Commerce Clause or the Supremacy Clause. It also considered whether Section 115 of the Delaware General Corporations Law, which provides that Delaware companies may require internal corporate claims to be brought exclusively in Delaware state courts, conflicts with federal law and the remedies it provides. The Court of Appeal held that there was no conflict between state and federal law here. Finally, the court determined that the federal form provision at issue in the case was not unenforceable under California law. It reasoned that that provision did not contravene the reasonable expectations of an ordinary investor because the provision was disclosed in the company's registration statement, and that provision was not procedurally or substantively unconscionable. This decision from the Court of Appeal should give greater confidence to corporate defendants that federal form provisions will be upheld in lawsuits in California. Thanks, Jeff. Let's turn to a case out of the Second Circuit from this fall. In Menorah Miftahim Insurance Limited versus Fruiterum Industries, the Second Circuit clarified that purchasers of an acquiring firm's securities do not have standing under Section 10B of the 34 Act to sue a target firm for misstatements the target allegedly made prior to a merger. The case stemmed from International Flavors and Fragrances, or IFF's, acquisition of Fruiterum Industries in 2018. Plaintiffs who had invested in IFF, but not Fruiterum, claimed that in the lead up to the merger, Fruiterum made misleading statements about the source of its growth and its compliance with anti-bribery laws. IFF incorporated those statements into its Form S-4. After the merger closed and Fruiterum became IFF's wholly owned subsidiary, 
Plaintiffs sued both companies in the Southern District of New York, challenging those statements. On appeal, plaintiffs argued that although they hadn't actually purchased Fruiteram stock, there was a direct relationship between IFF and Fruiteram. To try to show that relationship, plaintiffs argued that IFF and Fruiteram jointly presented their financial metrics to investors, and that financial analysts set the price of IFF stock based on Fruiteram's growth. But the Second Circuit rejected that argument, holding that only purchasers and sellers of the security about which a misrepresentation is made have standing to sue under Section 10b. Plaintiffs hadn't purchased Fruiteram stock, so they couldn't sue Fruiteram. The Second Circuit cautioned that adopting plaintiffs' fact-bound direct relationship test would cause an endless case-by-case erosion of the purchaser-seller rule. Thanks, Steve. Next, let's switch gears and discuss a recent Ninth Circuit decision helpful to corporate defendants in securities litigation. In March 2022, the Ninth Circuit reaffirmed in Weston Family Partnership versus Twitter that the federal securities laws do not require companies to provide real-time updates about their business operations. The case concerned disclosures about data privacy in connection with one of Twitter's products, the Mobile App Promotion, or MAP, advertising program. In May 2019, Twitter announced that it had discovered and fixed various data privacy issues with MAP. Three months later, the company again announced that it had discovered and fixed additional data privacy issues with MAP. The plaintiffs took issue with this because rather than disclose that it had stopped sharing user data for its MAP advertising program altogether, Twitter announced that it had resolved the data privacy issues. The plaintiffs argued that this gave the misleading impression that Twitter had resolved the underlying software bugs instead of simply putting a stop to data sharing. As a result, the plaintiffs alleged that Twitter and its senior executives had made false statements in violation of Section 10B of the 1934 Act. As we know, Julia, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the district court's dismissal of the complaint. In doing so, the Ninth Circuit observed that although society may have become accustomed to being instantly in the loop about the latest news, thanks in part to Twitter, our securities laws do not impose a similar requirement. Rather, the Ninth Circuit emphasized that companies do not have an obligation to offer an instantaneous update of every internal development, especially when it involves the off-torturous path of product development. The Ninth Circuit also concluded that the alleged misstatements merely suggested a vaguely optimistic assessment of MAP and did not issue any specific or unqualified guidance about MAP's development. As a result, the Ninth Circuit held that a company can speak selectively about its business so long as its statements do not paint a misleading picture. Although the Twitter decision doesn't really break new ground, Julia, it should give some additional assurance to companies that the securities laws do not demand real-time disclosure of business updates and other material information in every circumstance. And it is a clear and helpful statement of the law in this area. Thanks, Jeff and Julia. Turning to a topic on the minds of many securities lawyers, there have been a number of cryptocurrency-related securities filings in the last couple of years. Let's discuss some of the more noteworthy developments in this area. Cryptocurrency-related class actions have increased considerably, 
from four filings in 2019 to 12 filings in 2020 and 11 filings in 2021. These cases are in varying stages, but three in particular are worth highlighting. Each of these cases raises the issue of whether certain digital tokens qualify as securities under the federal securities laws. The first is a securities class action against Buybox, a digital asset trading platform. The complaint alleges that Buybox sold unregistered securities by offering six digital tokens for sale, that it sold securities on an unregistered exchange, and that it operated as an unregistered broker-dealer. In April 2021, a court in the Southern District of New York granted the defendant's motion to dismiss, albeit without deciding whether any of the six tokens at issue were a security for purposes of the federal securities laws. Instead, the court held that the plaintiff lacked standing to bring claims as to five of the six tokens because he never purchased them. As to the one token that the plaintiff had purchased, the court held that the claims were time-barred. What's notable about the Buybox decision is that even though the court accepted that all six tokens were fully functional technologies similar to Bitcoin, it held that this similarity was insufficient for standing to bring claims with respect to all six tokens. The court also concluded that the plaintiff had not pled that the five tokens that he did not purchase raised the same set of concerns as trading in the one token that he did purchase. In doing so, the court emphasized that the test for what qualifies as a security is a fact-intensive inquiry and depends on the unique characteristics of each token. The second case is a securities class action against cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase. The case alleges that 79 of the tokens listed on Coinbase's platform were unregistered securities. The complaint was filed in March 2022, alleging violations of the 1933 Act, 1934 Act, and state blue sky laws. In May 2022, the defendants filed a motion to dismiss arguing that the plaintiffs failed to plead that Coinbase passed Title II or successfully solicited the plaintiffs' purchases of any alleged securities, among other things. The court has yet to rule on the motion to dismiss. A third notable case is another securities class action, this time against Dapper Labs, a blockchain consumer product company that raises the question of whether NFTs or non-fungible tokens or securities. Dapper Labs operates an app called NBA Top Shots, which allows users to buy and sell NBA Top Shots moments, collectible NFTs that depict video clips of highlights from NBA games. In May 2021, the plaintiff filed a class action in New York State Court, alleging that Dapper Labs sold unregistered securities in violation of the 1933 Act. In July 2021, the defendants removed the case to the Southern District of New York, and the parties have briefed on the defendant's motion to dismiss whether NBA moments are securities for purposes of the federal securities laws. This case will therefore be one to follow closely. Steve and Julia, let's shift gears and discuss another emerging trend in private securities litigation. This is the rise of shareholder suits related to environmental social and governance, or ESG disclosures. In 2021 and early 2022, plaintiffs filed a number of derivative and security suits seeking to hold companies, directors, and officers liable for supposed misrepresentations about corporate diversity and inclusion. These suits have largely been unsuccessful to date. 
Several courts have dismissed them, holding that the plaintiffs failed to plead demand futility. For example, in September 2021, a Southern District of Florida court granted a motion to dismiss in a shareholder derivative action involving a healthcare company. The plaintiffs there had alleged breaches of fiduciary duty and violations of Section 14A of the Exchange Act based on a purported failure to diversify the company's board and senior executive suite. The plaintiffs also challenged the company's statements, including in its annual proxies and code of conduct, that the board valued diversity of knowledge base, professional experience and skills, and takes these qualities into account when considering director nominees. The plaintiffs alleged that the defendants had refused to hire or nominate diverse candidates to the board, failed to disclose a lack of director term limits allegedly due to racism, and failed to disclose that the company's internal controls were allegedly inadequate to protect diverse candidates from discrimination in board and executive selection processes. The district court granted the defendant's motion to dismiss, holding that the plaintiffs failed to plead demand futility. The court concluded that the allegations were conclusory and that the complaint did not plead any particularized facts to support that the defendants had violated anti-discrimination laws or the company's code of conduct. The court also observed that other courts have repeatedly held that statements concerning a company's commitment to diversity are unactionable puffery. Similarly, in November 2021, a District of Delaware court dismissed a derivative suit against the directors of Qualcomm. The complaint alleged that the defendants breached their fiduciary duties and violated Section 14A by allowing unlawful and discriminatory practices to proliferate at the company and by failing to nominate a diverse board. The plaintiffs also alleged that Qualcomm's annual proxies falsely stated that its governance committee aimed to, quote, assemble a board of directors that brings to us a diversity of perspectives and skills, close quote, and would, quote, instruct any search firm it engages to include women and racially, ethnically diverse candidates in the pool for director nominees. On defendant's motion to dismiss, the court held that statements about a board's or company's goals are inactionable puffery and that as to the search process, the plaintiff had failed to allege facts indicating that Qualcomm's board did not, in fact, instruct a search firm to pursue diverse candidates. These decisions reflect a broader trend of court's unwillingness to find more than mere puffery and aspirational statements regarding diversity and inclusion and the high bar to pleading demand futility in such suits. In terms of additional ESG litigation, that we expect to see down the line. Claims of so-called corporate greenwashing are on the rise. These claims focus on statements that companies make about the environmental impacts of their businesses and commitments to sustainability. For example, the past few years have seen securities fraud claims brought against Brazilian mining company Vale about its statements regarding safety and sustainability and oil and gas company Exxon relating to statements about global warning. A recent example, Julia, outside the natural resources space is a case filed against the Oatly Group, an oat milk company in March 2022. The plaintiffs alleged that Oatly violated Section 10B by representing that sustainability is at the core of our business, that sustainability is a mindset that helps us navigate business decisions and that with every liter of Oatly milk we produce, our positive environmental and societal impact increases. 
the plaintiffs claim that these statements were false because there were very high concentrations of wastewater products from Oatly's manufacturing facility in New Jersey. After the defendants filed a motion to dismiss, contending that these statements were inactionable, the parties conferred and agreed to allow the plaintiffs to file an amended complaint with claims based on these sustainability statements. Now, Steve and Julia, we are still in the early days of such claims, and many remain pending before the courts. With the growing focus on ESG matters and the attendant growth in ESG-related litigation, companies should be mindful of the litigation risk posed by their ESG-related disclosures and proactively take steps to mitigate that risk, including through careful review of their disclosures with both internal and external counsel. Thank you, Jeff. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.salcrom.com. For a more in-depth discussion of today's topics, please take a look at our biannual Securities Enforcement and Litigation Update published last month and available on the Securities Litigation page of our website. Please also join Jeff, Julia, and me for our SNC Critical Insights on the priorities of the SEC's Enforcement Division and recent securities enforcement trends. Mm -hmm.